Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live in the Washington, D.C. area, Saturday mornings from 9 till 10 on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. It's Groundhog Day! And I'm Jim Russ. Yes, it is. Groundhog Day. Still Uh in lockdown. Uh Lockdown day 1000. But lockdown is beginning to ease up, but I'm still down here at the Bay House this week, you know, in lockdown. Yeah, that's lockdown in small letters. Yeah, lockdown in small (laughs) letters. I went out and got some oysters yesterday. They were perfect. This morning I went out and uh, checked the crab traps, but they're Uh not really... The crabs have not really come in yet. It's a little too cold. I'm hoping we're going to get some good crabs in the next uh, next couple of weeks. Well, but. you know, the, the thing is that you are – this is a way of social distancing. You're becoming self-sustainable down there by, by uh, fishing. Exactly. Opening exactly. the Shirts National Fishery. I can I can live off the water. I'm becoming <laughs> I'm becoming a, I'm becoming a native a native American as they say, living living off the land, living off the water. I'm growing tomatoes. Perhaps I can trade you some tomatoes for shellfish. Okay, there we go. Okay, bartering, go. bartering, exactly. Bartering, right. it, bartering goes back to the to the good old days. It does back to the uh, you know the beginning of this country. That's exactly right. Well, you know, as always, uh, there's many things going on in technology and. And I'm going to talk about how this this lockdown has affected, the, you know, the ebb and flow and direction of technology. Like, for instance, the Navy, because they had so many problems when the sailors got uh, COVID-19, they now are going full steam ahead so on, a, uh, on an unmanned, um, you know, battleship. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that'll probably be fielded in the next, and it'll be a completely redesigned. But if you take out the need for kitchens and for places to sleep and for walkways, you can make a much smaller ship that has the same capacity. So it's sort of like make, a floating drone, right? It's a floating drone with missiles. Yes. So there, uh, there's a, there's a big push to get that done. Uh, and, uh, the U.S. is really redirecting all their technology efforts. They're trying to put pressure on, on Taiwan, the, uh, this big company in Taiwan, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. They make advanced chips for U.S. companies like, like Apple and others, but they also make them for Chinese companies like Huawei. And 50, uh, 59% of their uh, revenue is from, generated from U.S. sales and 19% Chinese sales, and the U.S. is trying to pressure them to decide whose side they're going to be on. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to be the Switzerland of chip manufacturing. (laughs) They say, we're friends with everybody. We want to be the Switzerland to everybody. And we're going to talk about briefly the uh, most in-demand jobs, if you want to go to these job job websites like Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R, or Upwork, 
these are the ones where you can get, um, you know, you can get uh, what they call a side gig, mm-hmm. and you can and you can while you're sitting at home. And I think side gigs make a lot of sense. Now this week we're going to feature the man who is known as the godfather of deep learning, Jeffrey Everest Hinton. He worked on this for years and years, even when people thought that deep learning was a dead end. He continued working on it, and in the end. He prevailed. It's an interesting, interesting story. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Yes, we got an email from Eleanor in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, my eyesight is not what it used to be. And now I have a new computer with Windows 10. And with my new Windows 10 computer, I have trouble seeing the mouse pointer. Now, years ago, my daughter helped me increase the size of my mouse pointer on my old Windows 7 PC, but she's no longer here to help me. Can you tell me how to do it? I need a bigger cursor. I can't see what's going on when I do my Word documents. Eleanor from Fairfax. Well, Eleanor, it is very easy to make the mouse pointer larger and easier to see in Windows 10. Now, here's how you do it. And if you if you don't get this written down, you can you can log in on Monday. We'll have our uh, Tech Talk outline posted on techtalk.stratford.edu, and you can you can just read it directly. You want to click on the Start button, and then type the words in the Control Panel. Uh, then you then you type Control Panel. Uh, you click the Start button. Search for Control Panel by typing the words Control Panel, and then click on con- the Control Panel from the search results. Then once the control panel is up, Eleanor, you click hardware and sound. And then under hardware and sound, you click devices and printers. Under devices and printers, you click mouse. And then you click the pointers tab under the mouse window, in the mouse window. And then you click the down arrow in the box, in the box that says scheme, and you select magnified from the drop down menu. And then you click apply. So you simply go to the control panel, click hardware and sound, devices and printers. Then you select mouse. Then you select pointers tab. And then you select the scheme magnified from the drop down. And then you, then you click OK. That's all there is to it. And I hope that that solves your problem, Eleanor. It's really, you, you have a lot of uh, options there on the mouse. You can also get different shapes, different colors as well as just magnifying them. So you play around with the one that you like the best. We got an email from John in Reston. Dear Tech Talk, I heard you talking about the coding on the touchscreen of the cell phone to to read his fingerprints. How can I clean my phone after doing shopping without damaging this coding? Love the show, John in, in Reston, Virginia. Well, that is a problem, John, because... You know, people, they're very careful. They go to get the shopping carts. They clean the shopping cart. They're going around the grocery store. And then somebody calls them. And then they've they've just been touching stuff in the store. Then they hold their cell phone. Even if you have on gloves or, you know, these little little plastic gloves, you hold your cell phone. Well, all of the COVID-19 virus that you've picked up by touching things in the store is now on your cell phone. And so... And so just washing your hands doesn't work. You've been touching your cell phone. You've got to clean your cell phone. Now, it is true, um, John, that there is a layer on the cell phone screen that keeps fingerprints from uh, from being so obtrusive. It's called an oleophobic layer, oleophobic. Now, we know that oleo oil. means oil, and phobic means resist. 
So it's oil resistant. So it resists the oil in your fingerprints. And they and they put a, they it turns out the oleophobic layers, they started putting those on cell phones. Actually, Apple did it first. And the first oleophobic screen was in the 3GS iPhone. And yes, indeed, you can damage that oleophobic layer. Wasn't the, the iPhone 3, wasn't that the one with the plastic case? I don't know, Jim. Uh, I'm sorry. It could, uh, it could, it could have some... been. Uh-huh. Why don't, you can do a little research I on that. I will do that. Okay. Now, the thing is, you've got these disinfectants, and some of them will damage the screen. So here's the trick. All the disinfectants have isopropyl alcohol in them. If the isopropyl alcohol is above 70%, uh, it will damage the screen. Now, if it's below 70%, ah. there's not enough alcohol to kill all the germs. So you've <laughs> got to be at exactly 70%. That's the key. Now, a lot of the disinfectant wipes on the market are 75% alcohol, and mm -hmm. that's 5% too much, and an extra 5% can damage the screen. But you can get alcohol wipes that are 70%, but you got to read the label. And you can get 70% alcohol wipes at places like Walgreens or C C CVS. So you don't want more than 70, and you don't want less than 70. And then I think your oleophobic screen will be perfect. And by the way, knowing that word oleophobic, it goes a long way at a cocktail party if you want to, like, clear the buffet. I was going to say it goes a long way to clearing the room. Yes, the Apple III, which was released in 2009 – was had the plastic back on it. It was a black plastic back. And you know what? You were you were my uh, inspiration to get an iPhone. Okay. I would not have fallen into the iPhone trap if it had not been for you. I might still have my slide Sony Ericsson phone now. I know you 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 had a monstrosity at one time. I can't remember what it was, but it was it an embarrassment. <laughs> it was an embarrassment to have it in the Tech Talk studio. <laughs> <laughs> it actually wasn't a bad looking phone. It was small. No. It was a slide phone, and you know why I bought it? It had an why? FM receiver in it. Oh, okay. Now you don't really need that because everybody streams, right? Everybody streams. You don't need an FM. You don't need an AM receiver. You don't need any receivers no. anymore. Exactly, yeah. Okay, we got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Jim, and the incomparable and irredeemable Mr. Big Voice. Wow, irredeemable is right. Irredeemable. Okay, you've probably ever looked at the source of a bit of technology trivial trivia that I sent last week, Fandango on the core. Uh, I sent it to you a couple days ago. And I also I also think you'd enjoy looking at the jargon file, jargon file that I that I was reading about. I, I, I knew about it, but it was interesting to read. It's a treasure trust of potential candidates for profiles in IT. The jargon file is a glossary and of slang used by computer programmers. The original jargon file was a collection of terms from cultures like technical cultures like the MIT AI lab or the Stanford AI lab or the old ARPANET or the LISP community. Uh, it was published in paper back in 1983 as the Hacker's Dictionary and as the new Hacker's Dictionary in 1996. I love the show anyway, and I still try to twist the arms of my friends to tune in here to, to listen to the podcast, you know, really, both in, in the U.S. and, uh, and abroad. You, you really shouldn't have to twist their, their arms. No, you they shouldn't. They should just say, oh, you know, you're right. We should be listening to that. That is exactly right. Well, it's interesting. This Fandango on the core, I, I did enjoy reading that article. So let me explain what that talks about. 
whenever you write a program, there's called a memory pointer. And whenever you write new things to your stored memory, you, you know, you send it to that particular memory pointer and then you write it start at that the starting point of where you write it. Well, if you have an improperly written program and the memory pointer is located, say, where the code is stored in memory for, say, the operating system, then you overwrite the operating system and the whole place, the whole thing crashes. So they had something where you would have the improperly placed memory pointer and it was like it was dancing around the core going to the wrong place. So they called it, it was doing a Fandango dance on the core memory. So they called it Fandango on the core. That's, that's what they were doing that. And I'll tell you, I remember on the old IBM 360s, every time my program would fail, I'd get a core dump. Because in the old days, they didn't, they didn't call memory, they didn't call them, it was core memory, but mm -hmm. they, I'd get a core dump and I'd have to read out the hexadecimal code to figure out the state of the system at the moment it failed. And I can remember spending many a night going over hexadecimal code, uh, trying to figure that out. That's base 16, by the way. Hexadecimal is base 16. We're, we're used to base 10. Base 10. So base 10 has 0 through 9 digits. Base 16 has an additional 6 digits. So they go 0 through 9, and then they go A, B, C, D, E, F. So you take... 0 through 9 and A through F, you've got 16 digits, and that's hexadecimal code. I don't know why that's really important, but that also will clear, <laughs> that will also clear, they'll also clear the buffet line if you, if you want to ask if somebody If you want more Swedish meatballs, bring that up. That's right. Now, I went through the jargon file. That, that was really interesting, and because uh, I went through, and there's, I mean, you know, technical people sort of have corny jokes or all these this jargon in there that's just kind of corny jokes. It's just it was just fun to read. I, it sort of brought back memories. But oh, the one thing about college? yeah, but the, but the one thing about this hacker's dictionary, they were the ones that made the great distinction where a hacker was a good guy mm -hmm. who was trying to find errors in the code so that he could notify the person that was published the code to fix it. Now the people that wanted to discover these vulnerabilities and then use them for nefarious reasons, they called them crackers, <laughs> not hackers. And so there was this big debate. There were a lot of good guys that were hackers, but then all of a sudden popular culture started treating a hacker as a bad thing. And they said, no, hacker's a good thing. Cracker is a bad thing. And they made that, they made that point quite extensively in the hacker's dictionary. Well, thanks, Bob, for all those memories. It did, it did bring – it was nostalgia time as I was going through the stuff you sent me. We got an email from Nathan in Manassas. Dear Tech Talk, I'm planning to buy a new laptop, and I'm looking for, I, I'm looking for a simple way to transfer the files from my old laptop to my new laptop. And what I'd like to do is just be to plug a USB ca cable between the two computers and just transfer the files. Is that possible? Nathan and Manassas, well, Nathan, that's kind of a, a good idea. So you can transfer via the USB port, but you can't just plug a USB cable and you need to, what well, they have a USB bridge cable, a USB bridge cable. Now, a good bridge cable, I went on Amazon. There's a good one made by Pluggable. 
the company is pluggable. It's around $25 on Amazon. I just checked it last night. And it also includes a free license to Bravura, which is a computer sync program that you can use to transfer all your files from the old computer to the new computer. Now, here's the downside. This bridge cable is USB 2.0 rather than USB 3.0. It turns out USB 3.0 is 10 times faster. So if you've got a lot of files to transfer, you're going to be sitting there a long time waiting for them to transfer. It could be several hours. Uh, It'd be much better to be able to do it with the USB option, but I don't don't have a transfer bridge that's USB 3.0. So it'll be a USB 2.0 transfer, even if both computers have USB 3.0, which they probably do. So a faster way to do it would be to get a USB 3.0 hard drive, external hard drive, copy it into the hard drive, and then take the hard drive to the new computer and then copy it from the hard drive. That that would be quicker. Or you could get a... You could do it uh, an external solid state drive. That would be a quicker way to do it. But then you'd have to buy a uh, an external hard drive, which then you could use as an extra backup, by the way. And you can you can get a you know one terabyte external hard drive for you know less than a hundred dollars, and then you just use that as an as an external backup. So if you don't have too many files to copy, or if you don't mind just starting the copying process at night and then going to bed, then the bridge cable will work. We got an email from Valerie in Boston. Dear Doc and Jim, we're planning to backpack for the week, for a week. And we probably will not have access to electricity. I want to keep my cell phone charged with a solar panel. Is that practical? Love the show, Valerie in Boston. Well, Valerie, it is possible, actually. And I there's this great foldable solar panel. It actually has four panels. And you can, when you fold it up, it's quite small. Then, then you lay it out. And it was really designed to clip on the back of your backpack. So as you're walking, you've got the solar panel, all four panels, just hanging down, collecting all that sunlight. And <clears throat> now you'd need at least 14 watts to charge your phone in a reasonable length of time. Now, I recommend the Nectech, N-E-K, T-E-K, 21-watt solar charger. It has two ports on it. It's $49, and uh, it provides enough power to charge two devices at the same time, actually. And the, and the conversion rate is, you know, 21 to 24% of sunlight to electricity, so it's a pretty efficient unit. they got a built-in smart integrated circuit chip that will port the current intelligently to one device or another in order to maximize charging speed. It's ultra lightweight. It only weighs 20 ounces and it's compact when it's folded. It's, it's about a foot long and about seven, six and a half inches wide. And when it's uh, uh, opened out, it's around a foot wide and then 20, 22 inches long. And it's just, it's perfect. It fits perfectly on the back on, on the back of a backpack. So that's a really good option for you. I bought one of those for my son. He does a lot of long distance biking. And so he just, he just hangs it on his, on his backpack while he's biking. And, and he always has his cell phone up and running. We got an email from Alice in Wonderland. Dear Alice in Wonderland. You know, we, 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 we've had the best listeners, you know, Jim, you know, yes, indeed. Now and we also have we've had Alice. I was going to say we have Alice in Wonderland, and we have Alice from Alice's Palace. Yes, we do. Alice from Alice's Palace. Yeah, they, well, those are two two different Alices. Correct. We Alice says I live in a three level single family home, 
and have Verizon Fios as my IP service. I got an iMac on the main floor and an Apple TV in the basement. Today, nearly every show I selected on Apple TV would not load. All I got was the spinning icon. I rebuilded the power to the Apple TV. This did not fix the problem. What are my issues? Alice and anxious to return to Wonderland. I guess without TV, <laughs> I guess without TV, it's not a Wonderland. No, I guess not. Well, Alice, it sounds like it's an internet connection issue. You need to reboot your Wi-Fi router when the internet is down. Simply rebooting the Apple TV won't do it. Now, I've, I've got my router set up as 2.4 gigahertz and 5.8 gigahertz. And I gave them different names so I can actually connect to one or the other. I don't let the router pick who I'm going to get. Now, what I did for my Apple TV, I selected the 5.8 gigahertz band because it has substantially more bandwidth. And so I connect my Apple TV, and I've got several Apple TVs. I connect them all to the 5.8 gigahertz band, and I never have any kind of buffering problems. Occasionally, I will have an Internet problem, and I reboot the router. So best of luck with that. We got an email from Ford in Bowie, Maryland. Dear Tech Talk, I've got a boatload of baby pictures and no place to store them. Now, I've been sending them as attachments using my free email accounts, like to Yahoo, to Gmail, to Hotmail. Uh, And I use that for my picture storage. I was wondering how long I'll be able to keep those accounts open. I'd hate to lose my pictures. Love the show, Ford and Bowie. Uh, Ford, this is a bad This is a bad technique Mm -hmm. to save critical pictures. Uh, There's got to be a better way to store your pictures. Now, either you could get an external hard drive for less than $100, plug it into your uh, USB port on your your computer, and back them up there. Um, And and then if if you have copies on your main computer hard drive, as well as on the external hard drive, you've got You've got them located in two places, so that's called a backup. So you can't delete them from your main computer because then you don't have them in the external hard drive and you don't have a backup. Now, what I do, I use for my critical pictures that I don't want to lose, I have them on an external hard drive, plus I back them up to the cloud. And I've got multiple cloud accounts. I'm with, uh, you know, I've got, I got a cloud account with the Microsoft, one with Google, and one with Apple. So I've, I've got my pictures backed up everywhere. Now, Using these email is really a problem because if you don't log into your, these free email accounts, they'll delete them. For instance, Yahoo Mail. If, you're, if you rarely use your account, it will go to an inactive state and then be deleted. You can present this, prevent this by signing into your Yahoo account by using any device at least once every 12 months. Now, it's a good practice to log in twice a year. And what happens if, if they delete your account They'll recycle your email address and somebody else could steal it. Hmm. Now, Google reserves the right to delete data from your account after nine months of inactivity. Now, in practice, Google does not delete your account or data, but that policy could change in the future. So in this case, it's a good idea to log in twice a year. Google says it will not recycle usernames according to its terms of service. So that's good. Somebody can't steal your email account. But users can never sign up for a Gmail account previously held by another person even if that account has been deleted for years. Now, in the case of Hotmail, that's, of course, owned by Microsoft, after 270 days without logging in, Windows Live Hotmail account becomes inactive. This means that all messages stored in the account are deleted and no new mail is accepted. After 360 days of inactivity, the Hotmail account is permanently deleted. 
If you do not use your Window Live ID, which is your Hotmail email address, for 365 days, it too can be deleted, and somebody else can take your Hotmail address. So I would recommend you log into your email accounts twice a year, but more importantly, that you store your photos in a better way. Listen, we love your emails. Yeah. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County at 104.5 FM. You can learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Jeffrey Everest Hinton. Jeffrey Everest Hinton is a psychologist and computer scientist most noted for his work on artificial neural networks and deep learning. He is known as the godfather of deep learning. Jeffrey Hinton Everest was born December 6, 1947 in Wimbledon, London. That's where they got the big tennis tournament over Well, there. not this year, I don't think. Yeah, not this year. When he was in high school... He was fascinated by the model that that um, explained the brain as operating like a hologram. And, uh, and in that case, rather than keeping data at a single location, it spreads it across many, many neurons across the whole brain. Just like in a hologram, if you want to get the hologram of, a, of an object, the hologram captures the light diffracted from that object and stores it in a diffraction filter. And then when you send light in from the opposite direction, that diffraction filter will refocus the light and make it look like the object was there. So all elements of the object are spread across the entire hologram. So you can take just part of the hologram and reconstruct maybe a lower resolution version of the actual object. So just like a hologram, information that is stored as a memory in the brain is spread across a whole host of neurons. So he was fascinated by that view of the brain as a neural hologram. In 1970, he received a Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology from King's College in Cambridge. He was really interested in learning about brain science. Now, while at Cambridge, Hinton was inspired by the realization that scientists really didn't even understand the brain. They had a name for everything about memory, but they didn't really know how memory worked. They could not explain how neurons learned. That inspired him to focus his life in that area of research. In, 19, in 1977, he received a Ph.D. in artificial intelligence from the University of Edinburgh. And then he held a postdoctoral position at Sussex University and at the University of California in San Diego. After he finished his postdoc, now what that means, see, if somebody gets a Ph.D. and they don't get a job, they get a postdoctorate because it's a very low-paid internship kind of position. They're in a holding pattern until they get a job. So he had two postdocs. Then finally he got a job. 
and he and he went to Carnegie Mellon University and he was there for five years. Now, in the early 80s, when Hinton and his colleagues started working on artificial neural networks, these were computer networks that were inspired by the brain and how the brain works. And 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 he developed and the and uh, the 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 way these neural networks work is that neurons are they're made up of very simple elements where a neuron will take input from all of its neighbors and each of the inputs are weighted with a certain weight he'll add the, the inputs up the neuron will add the inputs up and if they're above a threshold the neuron sends an output to other neurons if when they add up all the inputs they're below the threshold the neuron sends no output it's at and we just it's either on or off and the trick is when you're when you're doing uh, creating a neural network with a memory, you have to adjust those weights. How do you adjust these millions and millions of weights? And it was very hard to adjust the weights if you had a multi-layer network because you 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 could adjust the weights on the outside of the network, but it was hard to adjust the weights in the interior of the network. They didn't really have a good algorithm to do it. And they developed the back propagation algorithm where they could handle a three-layered network, and that was really quite successful at doing the adjustments. And that was in the late 80s. And, and Hinton says, man, with this thing, we're really going to go to town. They were really excited about it. And they used the backpropagation algorithm to make simple neural networks that could learn word patterns. So they could look at a handwritten note and they could say, okay, they, they could read what it was using, um, using um, this artificial neural – it wasn't a neural network. It wasn't a very complicated problem, but it was the first proof of principle that the backprop algorithm worked. And I, I remember that. We were – I mean I was doing that, that kind of work back in the 80s too, and we were using the back, backprop algorithm. But in that case, we, were do, we had a simple project for Ford Motor Company where they were getting uh, waveforms out of a motor – and, and when, you know, when there's something wrong with the motor, like a spark plug is bad or the carburetor is not working, you'll, it, you'll, you'll get a different waveform coming out of the sensors in the motor. And we were using artificial neural networks to identify the problems of the motor by simply looking at the patterns using ANS as artificial neural networks to say, okay, it's a, it's a bad spark plug or whatever it is. But that was also a very, very simple problem. Then they, they came up with a more complicated uh, model that called – he co-invented what he called the Boltzmann machine. Now, this this is very interesting because if you take a uh, a neural network and you're trying to have it settle in on a particular memory pattern, it's very similar. And, and when it settles in a particular memory, it'll go into the lowest energy state based on what all the weights are. That is very similar to what happens in physics when you've got crystals. And the crystals will crystallize out in a certain way. It'll go to the lowest energy state as it forms crystals. And so they applied what they call the stochastic spin glass model with an, with an electric field. It turned out there was direct analogy of the mass. So they applied that model to artificial neural networks. And what was interesting about the Boltzmann machine, and I, I heard him uh, – you know, I heard Hinton talk about this thing at, at, a, at a Google fireside. I was, just, I was just watching that over the weekend, actually. You know, that's the kind of thing I do when I'm down yes. here at the Bay House, uh -huh. you know. <laughs> and, uh, because so, you can't do it at a cocktail party and scare everybody away. No, you, you can't. And, you know, you know the other, there are no cocktail parties down here now. Everybody's afraid to go to a cocktail party. Mm -hmm. and, and so you can't clear the buffet. If you have a virtual cocktail party, you're clearing your own buffet. 
nobody's there. So it doesn't, the whole thing doesn't work. No, I've got to wait. Yeah, the, the model doesn't, no. The model, the model doesn't work. So it turned out that when they wanted to, uh, to uh, train the Boltzmann machine, uh, they would they would they would inject it to training and they would adjust the weights which were connecting the neurons. And then there would be some false minima or false memories that were injected into this. And they discovered that they could actually go into an unlearning mode where what they would do is they would give no input into the Boltzmann machine and they would put it into a state of suspended animation and then they would put it into an unlearning mode, and the states that would just sort of drop into while it was in this suspended action, they would try to unlearn. And it turned out that this is very similar to the human dream state. And so he believes that we go have dreams at night and that we're going through an unlearning process to stabilize what we'd ever learned that day. And, uh, and you know, when you're in a human dream state, you can't remember what you were dreaming. Now, if somebody wakes you up right in the middle of a dream, you'll remember what you were dreaming at that moment because it's in short-term memory. But you won't remember what you'd already dreamt, which would be a problem because then things that you dreamt you would think were real. So <laughs> This is getting very deep. It is getting very deep. And so now he has four models for human dream states that he's now pursuing. Now – the problem was in the late 80s, computers were not powerful enough because you have to train it with massive amounts of data and you need huge, huge networks to actually with, you know, a millions of neurons and multi millions of interconnects and weights to make this work. You need huge data sets. So back in the late 80s, they did not have the computational power and they had very small networks and very small data sets. And so the problem was, is that the data sets were so small and the, um, the networks were so small that, in fact, there were conventional algorithms that could do better than artificial neural networks. So it was kind of a big disappointment. They said, well, it's a, it's a clever idea, but it's not really working. And, and the reason it wasn't working, they didn't have the scale. But, but back then, Hinton, Hinton didn't, Jeffrey Hinton didn't know that. He thought maybe they have to adjust the model. It was really, he now knows, they just hadn't scaled it up enough. So artificial neural networks went into this dark abyss. Nobody wanted to fund them. And then people would say, okay, if you, if you get into this deep learning research area, it's a dead end for your career. So nobody wanted to enter the field. But he stuck it out. He stuck it out in the dark days. This was the dark days of the 90s. Mm -hmm. Now, he and he just kept working on it, and he just kept trying to refine the model. Now, in, from 1998 until 2001, he set up the Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit, University College in London. He was there for uh, three years, set that up. Then he went back to Toronto to continue his research. He became a fellow of the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. And then he moved to the Department of Computer Science at the University of Toronto. And people at the Department of Computer Science treated him like a piranha because they said they, they, they advise students do not go into Hinton's lab. It's a dead end for your career. But he still attracted a fair number of students that, that wanted to really understand how the brain worked. Now, he was a true believer because he says, look, the brain operates in this analog process. It works for humans. So we have a model that we know works. We just have to figure out how to make it work, and it'll be better than anything out there. So he believed in it, even though he didn't have the, the right formula. Now, in order to get 
a critical mass of people working on it during the dark days, he founded the Neural Computation and Adaptive Perception Program, NCAP. And he founded this, and he, it was an invite-only group of computer scientists, biologists, electrical engineers, neuroscientists, physicists, and psychologists. It was multidisciplinary because we have a lot of disciplines here. You've got that stochastic model with that Boltzmann machine, that's really statistical physics. Then you want to have uh, psychologists there because you have to train these things. You have to know how to train them. You need uh, biologists because you want to look for analogies in the brain. So you want a multidisciplinary team. And he formed this, and he was like the spiritual head of this group to sort of inspire them to continue the research. Now, a big breakthrough occurred for these guys in 2005. This was in the advent of the graphics processing unit, the GPU. Now, the graphic processing unit, it was really made for gamers. So you could, you know, the central processing unit of the computer, you could relieve it of all of its processing requirements, and the graphical processing unit would render the image on the screen. And it really reduced the latency in games. They discovered that these GPUs, these graphical processing units, were optimized for parallel processing and for artificial neural neural networks. So they started doing computation with GPUs, and that gave them a big push in processing power. In 2007, Hinton and his team had their first major breakthrough where they could actually outperform something that was done with conventional uh, rule-based algorithms. In 2007, they used artificial neural networks with the back propagation algorithm to do speech recognition. They took the same, uh, remember I said they had character recognitions where they started. They took the same basic model, but just applied it to speech, where, in, where instead of looking at uh, a character, they were looking at a waveform. And they actually achieved uh, results that were on parity with speech recognition software that had taken over 30 years to develop. And they did this training in just a matter of months. So this was the first time that they had true success with this. Now, two of his students left him, got their PhDs, and they went to work for Google. And they continued their work on speech recognition. In 2011, Speech recognition went into production at Google, and that's when we had the speech recognition on the Android phones. And, and if, if you remember, there's this huge jump around 2011 in the ability for speech recognition. It was because of Hinton's work and the work of Hinton's team on this. Now, they had a second big breakthrough. They applied these artificial neural networks with the backpropagation to image recognition back in 2012. There was a big competition. And they had 1,200 images they had to analyze, and they, they, they had the training data set. They, had, they trained it on the images. And the, the system that, that came out of Hinton's group using uh, artificial neural networks for image recognition actually beat uh, conventional image uh, processing algorithms for the first time. So that was the second big success. Then the third big success, they applied it to molecular modeling. They wanted to figure out what shapes of molecules would, would, would actually attach themselves to the human system and cause a virus. And so they looked at all these different molecular structures, and they were able to, to predict what would work. So these were the first three big, big examples. And then what happened, 
that really made the huge breakthrough in artificial neural networks is all of a sudden processing speed became dirt cheap. Uh, we had virtual computers. We had cloud computing. Um, and we had low-cost memory on the cloud. And all of a sudden, they could start scaling this thing up to neural networks that had billions of neurons. We also had the availability of these huge data sets because we had all these internet companies collecting data on people. So now they had these huge data sets that they could use. So now they solved the scale problem and it turned out that Hinton discovered empirically, he didn't predict that theoretically, discovered empirically that the scale was the issue. Once they scaled up to enough, enough uh, neurons and a big enough data set, this technique actually was superior. And now we started seeing a whole acceleration in its whole deep learning area. So both speech recognition and artificial vision systems were really pioneered by Microsoft, Google, and Yahoo using graduate students out of Hinton's group. And finally, computational power had caught up with neural network needs. In 2011, an NCAP researcher named Andrew Ning, that's his uh, uh, founded the Deep Learning Project at Google. In 2013, Hinton joined Google half-time at the, the deep, lear deep Learning thing. And I, I was watching a lot of, he's, he's, he's made a lot of, uh, Hinton's made a lot of uh, videos at Google, and I was watching a fireside chat. Guys, the guy is really interesting. He's very humble. And uh, he gives credit. You listen to him. He gives credit to his graduate students, and, and he likes to say that graduate students inspire him because he's locked in to a bunch of preconceived notions that his graduate students don't have. So they come up with innovative ideas that break his preconceived notions, and so he thrives being around them. But more importantly, he gives them credit for what they do. In, uh, in, in 2019, he received the Turing Award for conceptual and engineering breakthroughs in deep neural networks, he got that he was a he he received that with two other people that were in his uh, in his um, work group, uh, Jan Lacon, Lon Lacon, who we featured before, and Yashua Bengio. I've never featured Yashio before. Uh, he got they received the Turing Award. This is a huge huge achievement in. Uh, you know, in, 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 in the world of computation. And what is interesting is that Turing originally back in the day, 70 years ago, was proposing that there would be a dip distributed processing system similar to neural networks that would actually work. So it dates all the way back to Turing, these ideas. Now, here's another interesting fact. Hinton is the great, great grandson of, log of logician Charles Boole. Boole invented uh, binary, binary digits, base two digits, zeros and ones, called Boolean, you know, Boolean algebra. Mm -hmm. And that eventually, George Boole, his work eventually became the foundation of modern computer science, which all, which basically manipulates zeros and ones because you have switches either on or off. Now, if you want to learn all about Hinton, you go to his website, toronto.edu slash squiggly Hinton. I don't know what that squiggly thing is there, that little squiggle. Uh, just, just, uh, just. It, actually, you you can find it on the web just by just by googling Jeffrey Everest Hinton. So there, everything you need to know about Jeffrey Hinton 
the godfather of deep learning. You mentioned a lot of people are having, uh, we're talking about dreaming, and uh, a lot of people are having weird dreams these days. How about you? Oh, yeah. just <laughs> well, well, see, the thing is, people, are, what's happening when you're not working, people are staying up all night and sleeping in the day also. So it's like uh. they, the, everybody's schedule is getting, is getting corrupted. Hmm. Is that, so that explains it. Yes, that's right. Exactly. I knew I knew you would know. There <laughs> yes. you go. All right, hang on. We're going to play the pop quiz in just a second. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio. Heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, and then Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. We can sit down, yes, they are keep under sitting. control. Sitting As down. As part here. of crowd distancing, we do not allow them to stand anymore in the studio. Okay, that's very good. So that means we can't get a standing ovation, Jim. That That is a problem, but... You have, we'll have to earn to one first, it. Doc. Well, okay. Well, thank you very much for that. Well, this is not simply a radio show. This, of course, is a class, classroom of the airways, and that means that we're going to test whether our audience has been listening. And if you get the right answer to our test, which will be a pop quiz, you get an A-plus for today's show, plus tickets to fine dining at one of the Stratford dining rooms when they finally open after lockdown ends. Yes. Earlier in the show, we talked about Jeffrey Everest Hinton, he, of course, is known as the godfather of deep learning. When he was in high school, he was inspired by the fact that the brain operates in a certain way. How was he visualizing the brain is operating? And, that, and if you get the right answer to that, you'll win the pop quiz for today. If you know the answer to today's question, well, as soon as you hear the number, we'd like you to give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877 936 
877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're studying Boolean algebra in Canada, call us on the wildcard line. 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. This week sponsored by Clorox Wipes. 877-9-3639-333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, thank you very much. The Navy wants to deploy robo-ships, robot ships. They're working with, da- with DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, to develop autonomous robotic ships that are completely free of humans. It's called NOMARS, N-O-M-A-R-S. That stands for No Mariner's Required Ship. Ah. <laughs> NOMARS. And this concept, if successful, would be a huge leap over current unmanned surface vessel developments. See, we have a current unmanned program where you basically take existing ships with, with all the support for men, and you simply try to convert those to being, um, to operate in an autonomous way. That's called the large unmanned surface vehicle. And these ships are two to 300 feet long. They displace 2,000 tons. And in five years, these ships would act as scouting and sailing ahead autonomously, or they could have a small manned crew aboard. But they're basically just a reworking of an existing ship. No Mars is a completely separate and parallel effort. It's going to desire to design an autonomous ship from the ground up. And so since you won't have to build in the, to the ship accommodations, you won't have to gang planks or, uh, you know, walkways, uh, sleeping quarters, the ship can be much, much smaller. And it would be, you'd strip out anything relating to human habitation. You wouldn't have a ship's bridge. You wouldn't have a combat information center, no living accommodations, no mess, no recreation, no bathrooms. There would be nobody at all on this ship. Nobody would be on it. And it would be— And it would have weapons on it. It would would basically have—it would have a large mass sticking out of the top with sensors with communication, and it would have four missile launchers, which would be pointed in four different directions. Uh Uh-huh. And it would be very low. It would be almost in the, you know, mostly it would be mostly underwater and very little, very little footprint of, above the water line. So it's and kind it of a submarine, actually. Almost a submarine, but it would be at the surface. And this this would do boring work like sailing up and down the coastline of countries like North Korea, eavesdropping on radio and radar and cell phone communications. Now, this Nomar ship actually is ine- inevitable. And um, the the Navy wasn't pushing so dramatically for this concept until COVID-19 came out. Uh-huh. You remember, it just swept through right. uh, naval ships. And they and all of a sudden, they had uh, ships that were operating at subpar levels because so many men were sick. So this COVID-19 pandemic has really accelerated the Navy's work in NOMARS. And so... In 30 years, when they actually will probably fully deploy these everywhere, you can just look back on the COVID-19 year as the year that it all got started. So is it possible that we found something more dangerous than self-driving trucks? It, <laughs> it is, yeah. You feel differently, but I don't know. I'm, I'm having trouble getting behind this. Taiwan Manufacturing Company is making for Huawei as well as many U.S. companies. The U.S. fears that... They are basically giving China 
the the, the, the best technology the U.S. has to offer, and we don't like it. Now, TSMC's strategy, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing strategy, has been to stay neutral. Uh, it has most of its capacity is in Taiwan. They built one new factory, and they have one not so new factory in China, and they got an old facility in Washington State. Now, the coronavirus pandemic has highlighted Washington's need to protect our supply chain, and we want them to produce for the United States. In fact, we want them to produce in the United States and set up a brand new factory in the U.S. Now, Intel operates a, has a foundry that's, that competes with, uh, with the Taiwan uh, TSMC, uh, and it's in Santa Clara, California, but they, but their chips are more expensive because of labor costs. So all the business went to Taiwan. So Intel would like the U.S. to simply say, "Hey, we want you to, we want you to, you know, produce in the U.S." And so there is a push to get the Taiwan Semiconductor, semiconductor Manufacturing Company to uh, to set up manufacturing in the U.S. and then to limit Chinese access. Currently. The American market accounts for 59% of, of their sales, 19% go to China. So I'm really thinking there are going to be some long-term shifts that are caused by all of that activity. All right, Doc, we've got, we got to do this fast. We've got somebody who'd like to play the quiz on the phone here. Let's go to line one. This is Jim who's calling us from Bowie. Jim, you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, Hi. Doc, go ahead and ask a question, Okay, please. earlier in the show we had Jeffrey Hinton, godfather of deep learning, what did he think the brain operated as when he was in high school, and that inspired him to get into this field? He thought it operated, operated like a hologram. That is correct. correct. We have a winner. Jim, hang on a second. Hate to cut you short, but we are running out of time. Goodbye to the music. Doc, continue on. Okay, let's have observations from the bunker now. Yes, we just I have was time. We just do this. We just have time for observation from the bunker. So as people are sitting home with a lot of time on their hands, <laughs> it's, it's really possible that you may want to rethink all your career options. You know what, what happens? People get look, hooked into a particular career direction, and then they get one job after another after another. Then pretty soon they're locked into, locked into their career path by their resume. And so I love this book, What Color Is Your Parachute by Dick Bowles. It's a great read for people that want to reassess if they're going in the right direction. It helps you identify your strengths. It helps you identify the kind of stuff that you love to work on. And it helps you craft a job that uses those strengths and inclinations that you have. And if you take the advice of Dick Bowles and what colors your parachute, you can, you can actually get a job that's, that's fun and that it doesn't feel like work. And so it's a great, a great read. He, he also believes that when you want to get a job, just don't send out resumes. You want to go out and do surveys, talk to people, find out what makes sense. And through the surveys, you will find out what companies need. And eventually you can propose a job uh, that you believe they need as opposed to waiting for a job description. This is a great, great technique. So as you sit back in there in your, in your coronavirus isolation... You can rethink your future by looking at What Colors Your Parachute by Dick Bowles. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. We also want you to go to the Stratford University website. That would be www.stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can.
Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.